from WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies, in for Terry Gross. The Oscars are March 12th, and today we'll talk with New Yorker staff writer Michael Schulman. His new book, Oscar Wars, is about the ongoing conflicts surrounding race, gender, and representation, and earlier conflicts dating back to the founding of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. One of the fundamental flaws of the Oscars as a system is that art isn't really meant to be ranked. Also, we'll hear from comic Mark Maron. He said his comedy is fueled by anxiety, dread, and panic. In his new HBO comedy special, he talks about climate change, extremism, anti-Semitism, and other anxiety-producing social and political issues. He also talks about grief and the unexpected death of his girlfriend, Lynn Shelton. And John Powers will review the new documentary, All That Breathes, about two brothers devoted to rescuing birds in Delhi, India. That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies, in for Terry Gross. Terry has today's first interview. I'll let her introduce it. In his new book, Oscar Wars, a history of Hollywood in gold, sweat, and tears, Michael Shulman writes about the -the behind-the-scenes battles we don't see on the night Hollywood celebrates itself. He says, quote, The Oscars have become a conflict zone for issues of race, gender, and representation, high-profile signifiers of whose stories get told and whose don't. In previous decades, Oscar wars were waged over different issues, but they were no less fraught, unquote. The very existence of the Oscars and the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, which administers them, were created in an attempt to resolve a conflict in young Hollywood back in the late 1920s. The conflict Shulman writes about involved labor battles, World War II, anti-communist hysteria and blacklists, old Hollywood versus new Hollywood, the Me Too movement, Oscars so white, the zillions of dollars spent on campaigning for Oscars, and of course, greed and ego. Shulman has written for The New Yorker since 2006. Among the people he's written about are Pedro Almodovar, Emma Thompson, Elizabeth Moss, Adam Driver, and Jeremy Strong. He's also the author of a book about Meryl Streep. Shulman is so into the Oscars, he co-created an annual live series called You Like Me, an evening of classic acceptance speeches, an event at which he has actors read classic Oscar acceptance speeches. Michael Shulman, welcome to Fresh Air. Thanks for having me. Yes, I learned a lot of interesting stuff from your book. So there's different chapters of history that I want to cover with you. But let's start with the Oscars So White movement. And um, that's echoing this year, too. Explain how. Well, this year, the big Oscar controversy so far has been the surprise nomination of Andrea Riseborough for Best Actress. This was a out-of-nowhere campaign during the short nomination window uh, in January. Suddenly, there was this social media campaign by A-list actors like Edward Norton, Jennifer Aniston, trying to make sure Academy voters remembered Andrea Riseborough and Two Leslie. Now, this was a tiny little movie that had been released in the fall, and uh, very few people saw it. It made about as much money as it takes to buy a, a new Honda Civic. So it, she was not in the you know the quote unquote conversation, and yet um, because uh, this 
groundswell of support came uh, from high-profile people. Um, it was a very unusual way to campaign. The, the craziest thing about it is that it worked, and she was nominated for Best Actress for To Leslie. Um, meanwhile, um, two black actresses uh, who had been very much in the conversation, uh, Viola Davis in The Woman King and uh, Daniel Deadweiler in Till, were not nominated. And, you know, it's not really a kind of one person replaces another situation, but of course it's, you know, it, it brought up all these issues of of equity and representation at the Oscars and, you know, opened up this question of, does a black actress like Danielle Deadweiler have the network of support within the industry that an Andrea Riseborough is? And, you know, this is a conversation that has gone back decades with the Academy Awards. Um, you know, they they always fail as a sort of pure barometer of you know, artistic merit or or worth. There are a million other factors that go into who gets nominated and who wins. Let's talk about the Academy's reaction to Oscar So White. It kind of changed uh, the voting rules a bit. What were the changes? The real thing that changed was the makeup of the membership. So in 2016, for the second year in a row, all of the 20 acting nominees were white. And uh, an activist named April Rain had started a hashtag the year before, which was uh, hashtag Oscars so white, they asked to touch my hair. And, you know, that got some pickup in 2015. In 2016, it went absolutely viral. And uh, there was a lot of attention paid to the incredible uh, whiteness and maleness of the people who are in the Academy and who do the voting. So... Um, the Academy Board of Directors had an emergency meeting, and um, the president of the Academy at the time was Cheryl Boone Isaacs, who was uh, the first black president. And um, basically what they did was fast-tracked a plan they had been discussing to actively try to diversify the membership. So um, they invited uh, an, an unprecedented number of new people in, and it was more people of color, more women, younger people, and uh, also more international people. At the same time, they uh, had this policy where if you hadn't been active in the industry for many years, uh, you would be demoted to emeritus status, this this amazing kind of euphemism, which meant that basically you could not vote anymore. And this just set off a, a complete panic in Hollywood. Of course, there are a lot of people who praised what the Academy was doing, but then there was a very loud subsection of people who were just totally freaked out and felt that they were being blamed, that they were being uh, scapegoated as as racist. And, uh, you know, it became a real a, a real conflict so do you think those changes have made a difference? And has the controversy over those changes died down? It has made a difference. I mean, one of the underappreciated things about these reforms uh, was that the academy became much more international. And I think you start to see that reflected in a win like Parasite a few years ago. Uh, the academy's uh, assessment of movies has become uh, much less hemmed in by Hollywood as a as a physical place. Um, but of course, the controversy has not died down. Uh, and we see that this year with uh, with the best actress category. You know, this is a great year for Asian nominees, um, you know, Michelle Yeoh and uh, Hong Chao, uh, all the, you know, people from everything, everywhere all at once. Um, and yet there is still no a black actress nominated. There has not been a, a best 
uh, actress winner, uh, who's a person of color since Halle Berry, won the first and only one in, in 2002. And uh, there are no female directors nominated this year. So I think this is not a problem that's been solved. Like, you know, the larger issue in American life over inclusion and representation, it's kind of an ongoing battle. Well, let's go back to 1970 when there was a different battle over inclusion. And this was a conflict that that you frame as the conflict between old Hollywood and new Hollywood. So what what were the films that were in conflict in 1970, the year that you write about, when there was a real clash between the old school and the new Hollywood? That's right. I mean, so there was this incredible year. In the year before, 1969, the Best Picture winner was Oliver, which was the only G-rated movie to win uh, the top prize. Uh, the, the whole rating system was new at that time. Um, so it was the first and only G-rated uh, winner. And then one year later, Midnight Cowboy became the first and only X-rated winner uh, to win Best Picture. Um, and at the same time, some of the nominees were uh, were like Easy Rider, which really became an emblem of, you know, the sort of rising counterculture of, of the 60s and 70s. And so you had this ceremony where, you know, people like Bob Hope and John Wayne were up there talking about how, you know, everyone in the movies is naked or on drugs now. And they were kind of scandalized. And then, um, and then people like Dennis Hopper, who rolled into the Academy Awards uh, wearing a Stetson. And, you know, it was a real uh, meeting of, of worlds. Uh, now, at the time, Gregory Peck was the president of the Academy. And um, like the Academy leadership in 2016, he realized that there was a real gap, that movies were not speaking to, you know, the youth quake of, of the 60s, uh, to the counterculture. Uh, and the Academy was particularly behind the times. Um, so what he did was... Uh, put in this initiative, uh, much like, you know, the more recent one, to update the membership. And uh, he did a lot of outreach to, you know, people like Dustin Hoffman and, you know, Dennis Hopper, Peter Fonda, people who were like the up-and-coming countercultural uh, figures of the time. And then, um, then, as now, created a policy where if you hadn't been active for seven years— you would be uh, demoted to uh, a non-voting membership. And exactly the same way, he got angry letters. You know, I went through his files at the Academy Museum, and he preserved every outraged letter from, you know, old-timers who thought that they were being pushed aside, you know, people who had worked on Abbott and Costello movies in the 30s. We're listening to Terry's recent conversation with Michael Schulman, author of the new book Oscar Wars, A History of Hollywood in Gold, Sweat, and Tears. We'll hear more of their conversation after a break, and John Powers will review the Oscar-nominated documentary All That Breathes about two brothers devoted to rescuing birds in Delhi, India. This is Fresh Air Weekend. Let's get back to Terry's interview with Michael Schulman, author of the new book Oscar Wars, A History of Hollywood in Gold, Sweat, and Tears. It's about all the behind-the-scenes battles since the founding of the Academy. This year's ceremony is March 12th. Let's talk about campaigning for Oscars because it's become, as you write, it's become a cottage industry. Give us a sense of how big the industry is lobbying for Oscars. Right. Well, in a way, it's a bit similar to a presidential campaign. Um, you know, you have um, campaign strategists and publicists and people who spend the entire year 
uh, working on campaign strategizing, uh, placing ads, entering films and film festivals, um, and sort of positioning movies and appealing to particular Academy members. Um, you see presidential uh, candidates, you know, going to different primary states like, you know, New Hampshire, South Carolina. The movie version of that is, you know, all of these precursor awards like the Golden Globes, the SAGs, the, you know, the BAFTAs, uh, this kind of run-up. Um, there are also, like, events throughout the year where, you know, a presidential candidate might, you know, go to the, you know, a state fair in New Hampshire uh, and, you know— eat some corn on the cob, uh, the, the movie star version of that is, you know, going to the Santa Barbara Film Festival to be honored or going to a cocktail party. Um, and of course, the Academy has all sorts of rules and guidelines surrounding what people can and can't do. And they basically make up these rules to catch up with whatever, you know, the, the campaign strategists uh, invent. And that leads us to Harvey Weinstein, because he, as you put it, he turned campaigning for Oscars into a blood sport. What are some of the things that he did that no one had done before? Well, before uh, Harvey Weinstein really had his rise in the 90s at Miramax, um, you know, Oscar campaigning would be placing ads in the trade magazines, you know, for your consideration ads and variety or whatever. Um, and, you know, people having, you know, maybe some private screenings at their homes in Beverly Hills. Uh, what Weinstein did was basically leave no stone unturned. He would not just blanket, uh, you know, the airways and the papers with advertisements, but he would, um, for instance, find out where particular Academy members lived. And if there were, you know, three people in the Academy who happened to live in Santa Fe, he'd, uh, he'd have people call them and set up a, a screening there and make sure they went. And, you know, he would find little pockets of Academy members. And uh, and, and there were just nonstop, you know, events, parties, hoopla. Um, he also had a real gift for sort of creating stunts that would get publicity. You know, for instance, he had a... When, when uh, The English Patient was out and he staged an entire evening at at Town Hall in New York City with, you know, people reading from the book and, and music. and But then he would also um, find ways to sort of create humanitarian campaigns out of his movies. You know, famously, you know, My Left Foot with Daniel Day-Lewis. Um, he brought the movie and Daniel Day-Lewis to Washington and, you know, screened the movie for senators. Um the campaigns, though, didn't always really quite fit the movie. You know, uh, more recently, um, Silver Linings Playbook uh, was one of his movies, and he sort of spun this campaign that it was, you know, a, a really serious movie about mental health, which it, it kind of isn't. Talk a little bit about the campaigns between Saving Private Ryan, the Spielberg World War II film, and Shakespeare in Love, the comedy about Shakespeare that was produced by Weinstein's company, Miramax. What are some of the things that Weinstein did in that campaign that were unprecedented? Well, so this was 1999, and this has just gone down in history as the ugliest best picture fight of all time. An important part of that story is DreamWorks, which was uh, Steven Spielberg's studio. Um, DreamWorks was founded in 1994 by Spielberg, Jeffrey Katzenberg, and David Geffen. So it was it was really these these three bigwigs, um, and uh, they were on the cover of Time Magazine. Everyone was so excited. This was the first major Hollywood studio in you know decades and decades. Um, and 
it took them a few years to actually put out a movie that was a huge success. The, you know, Saving Private Ryan, it was Spielberg's big World War II movie that was a tribute to his own father's generation and his father had uh, fought in the war. And it came out in the summer of 1998. It was a gigantic success, a critical darling. And it was presumed to be the front runner for, for Best Picture for many months. And then in December, along came... Shakespeare in Love from Harvey Weinstein's Miramax. And it was really such a different kind of movie. It was frothy and fun and clever and romantic. Um, and it was about art, not war, and love, not, you know, death. And as we've seen many, many years of the Oscar, the, a sort of front-runner fatigue sets in. And so people were suddenly interested in this, this new dynamic. Um, and then what Weinstein did uh, with Miramax was push every conceivable angle he could with this movie. Like, there were tons of ads. He was throwing parties. The thing that really made this campaign so ugly was that DreamWorks got word through the grapevine that Weinstein was negative campaigning against Saving Private Ryan, that he was saying to journalists that they should write that essentially Saving Private Ryan was only good for the first 25 minutes, you know, the, the famous D-Day sequence. And uh, and after that was basically a, a, a run-of-the-mill World War II movie. Um, and so this got to DreamWorks. DreamWorks was absolutely furious. Um, they started complaining to the press about everything Miramax was doing. Uh, Harvey Weinstein denied, denied, denied. Um, it sounds familiar. And, um, and, it's, and, and the people who worked for him didn't necessarily know what he was doing all the time. And so they felt that they were just being smeared by DreamWorks. And by the time everyone got to Oscar night, there was so much resentment and enmity between these two studios. And um, people still thought that uh, Saving Private Ryan would win. And then Spielberg won Best Director. Uh Harrison Ford came out to present Best Picture, so the DreamWorks people thought, "Oh my gosh, it's Indiana Jones! Of course, it'll be it'll be Saving Private Ryan." But Shakespeare in Love won, and it was just this explosion of uh, shock and, uh, and and recrimination. And uh, the the head of uh, marketing at DreamWorks, Terry Press, uh, says that she was in the mezzanine watching and that she felt like her face was on fire. Um, and the next day in the New York Times, there was an article about uh, executives in Hollywood complaining that Weinstein had turned Oscar campaigning in, into, you know, uh, something that has, just has to do with money and politicking and that he had sort of cheapened the whole process. Um, as it turns out, in the end, someone tallied up the ads and found out that Saving Private Ryan had actually placed more ads in the trades than than Shakespeare in Love, but that sort of didn't matter at that point because everybody was so resentful of how uh, Weinstein had changed the paradigm. So talking about Harvey Weinstein leads us directly into the Me Too movement and its impact on the Oscars. And one of those impacts is that Harvey Weinstein was expelled from the Academy because of his sexual harassment and sexual assaults. Um, but that led to some interesting problems for the Academy about what about other people who were accused of sexual harassment or assault or who were found to have actually committed those acts. Talk about that a little bit. Well, yeah. I mean, people said at the time, you know, what about uh, Roman Polanski or so-and-so? Um, what's interesting about the last couple years is that 
Hollywood and movie fans, you know, us, the public, um, have really started to reckon more and more with, you know, these questions of do you separate the artist from the art? And, you know, how much do you uh, reward you know, if, if if someone is nominated for an Oscar or in contention and they've done something that, you know, is is morally objectionable or questionable, how much do you factor that into, you know, to the voting? And, um, uh, you know, it, it almost seems like uh, the Academy needs its own resident rabbi to sort of answer ethical questions. Uh, you know, there are th- th- these quandaries that come up, you know, if someone is, um, you know, made an off-color joke at some point, um, do they still, you know, should you should you set that aside and just focus on their performance? And it's these are really not easy questions because they they happen along a, a spectrum of seriousness. And you know, uh, someone like Harvey Weinstein should not be in in the Academy. Of course, he he's in jail now, so being in the Academy is kind of the <laughs> least of his problems. You know, because like the history of Hollywood is so much involved with like the quote casting couch. The casting couch has been so intertwined with the history of Hollywood and the powerful men who um, who ran the studios and the the directors too. Um, so I just wonder, like, if you were to look at Hollywood's past, would like half of the powerful men or more than half be guilty? Like, what would that look like? Yeah, yeah I mean, Hollywood history is inextricable from sexual coercion and assault. I mean, you know, some, you know, the the Columbia Pictures mogul Harry Cohn was absolutely notorious for harassing actresses. Um, you know, Louis B. Mayer, who uh, essentially invented the Academy, he was the very powerful head of MGM. You know, one of the stories about him is that he sort of came on to the actress uh, Anita Page and sort of threatened her Um in so many words, uh, and when she refused him, and then you know she went and asked for a raise, and they basically got rid of her, and her her career uh, quickly ebbed. So you know this is this is a, a tale as old as Hollywood. Let's look at where we are today. You were in the balcony at the Oscars the night that Will Smith uh, slapped Chris Rock. And you you couldn't tell exactly what was going on. You're so deep into the Oscars. You've been deep into them ever since you were a kid. Um, Was it exciting for you (laughs) in its own peculiar way to be there for such a kind of dramatic moment that everyone will be talking about for years? Oh, absolutely. So what was interesting about it was that, okay, I was in the balcony I am very nearsighted. That is important for the story. So I couldn't really see what was happening when the slap happened, but I could hear. I could hear perfectly when Will Smith uh, screamed, get my wife's name out in your mouth. And uh, I remember thinking, I don't think you can say that word on network TV. I I think this is real. But um, at home, people who were watching could see but not hear because it was all bleeped out. So I immediately got... 20 text messages from people I knew asking what just happened, what just happened. And um, we were just as confused in the room because some people thought, oh, that must have been staged. Some people thought, oh, no, it definitely wasn't. And it took a couple hours to figure out what had actually happened. What has the Academy been trying to do to prevent anything like that from ever happening again outside of um, saying we'll never give Will Smith an Oscar again? 
Well, they 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 could give him an Oscar technically. Oh, that's he right. Just they can't give him come. an Oscar. That he just can't come. That seems like not exactly For 10 a major years. punishment. <laughs> like, yeah. you, you can win the award, but you can't come to the ceremony. Right. <laughs> Or maybe I'll wait it out for 10 years and then come back. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I'm really curious to watch this year how they address uh, the notorious slap, um, whether the, the security will be different. I mean, at the time, there was so much debate over whether they should have, you know, basically escorted him out. Um, instead, he stayed, and then he won Best Actor, incredibly, and got up and gave this teary, very raw, uh, very emotional speech, um, which of course made great television, but it sort of left you to wonder, like, should this be happening? And then the way I ended the night was I went to uh, the Vanity Fair party, and uh, around 12.30 a.m., I decided to just take one last look at the dance floor and then go home and write my story for The New Yorker about the whole night. Um, and I was on the dance floor, and I turned around because I felt I felt some something behind me that was getting attention. I turned around and there was Will Smith three feet away from me, holding his new Oscar, dancing, smiling. Uh, his wife Jada Pinkett Smith was right next to him raising the roof. The DJ started playing uh, Getting Jiggy With It, which was, of course, uh, Will Smith's big hit from the 90s. He started dancing along to him himself and rapping along to his younger self. Uh, 50 phones came out and started recording. And just to watch him, like, with this big grin, you know, this man who had been through this emotional paroxysm, on, you know, in front of everyone, uh, live on stage, it was uh, such an unsettling and surreal image. And um, fortunately for me, I was kind of looking for a new ending to the book, and it pretty much wrote itself. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Well, enjoy the Oscars. Thank you. <laughs> I will. <laughs> And thank you for doing this. Thank you so much for having me, Terry. Michael Schulman is the author of the new book, Oscar Wars, a history of Hollywood in gold, sweat, and tears. He spoke with Terry Gross. The new documentary, All That Breathes, is about two brothers devoted to rescuing birds in Delhi, India. It's the first film ever to win Best Documentary at both Sundance and Cannes, and it's currently nominated for an Oscar. It's now being shown on HBO and HBO Max. Our critic at large, John Power, says it's a film that leaves you feeling better about life. In Annie Lamott's book on writing, she tells a great story about facing tasks that seem overwhelming. Her 10-year-old brother was doing a big school project on birds, and as the deadline loomed, he became paralyzed by how much he still had to do. His father put his arm around him and gave him a piece of advice. Bird by bird, buddy, he told him. Just take it bird by bird. This useful life lesson takes literal form in All That Breathes, a wonderful new documentary that arrives on HBO and HBO Max, garlanded with international awards. Directed by Sean Lexen and ravishingly shot by Ben Bernard, this inspiring film takes us inside the lives of two ordinary-seeming Muslim brothers in Delhi, who are actually extraordinary in their dedication to doing good in a city teetering on the edge of apocalypse. Their brothers are named Saud and Nadim, the former friendly, the latter a little grumpy. Along with their somewhat comical sidekick, Salik, they devote themselves to a project they began as kids, protecting the bird of prey known as the black kite, a glorious hovering creature widely detested as a scavenging nuisance. 
Day after day, ailing and injured kites arrive at their homemade infirmary, where the trio nurses them until they're able to fly back into the urban wild. Talk about bird by bird. The guys have helped 20,000 so far. And the injured kites just keep falling from the sky in a city whose air is infamously filthy and whose toxin-laced landfills may be the world's largest. Delhi is a gaping wound, Saud says, and we're just a band-aid on it. Although the guys have moments of fun, they play indoor cricket, theirs is an endless, largely thankless task. We watch them do everything from fishing wounded birds out of sewagey rivers to talking butchers into selling them cheap meat to grind up as feed. They keep applying for funding that never seems to come. Making things trickier, they do this in a city charged with sectarian violence. During the filming, angry mobs kill Muslims and burn buildings in a neighborhood about a mile from their home filling the already smoggy air with a miasma of dread. But the movie's not grim. Working in an impressionistic style that couldn't be less strident or propagandistic, Santa's made a film that captures life in the richest and most humane sense. He immerses us in a world we didn't know before, showing us the lives of regular people, not celebrated artists or politicians. And he lets us make connections for ourselves. There's no narrator or text telling us what to think as we watch the intersection of three ecosystems. The largest is the natural one. All that breathes is filled with shots of Delhi's animal life, lizards, insects, dogs, rats, and the city's notoriously troublesome monkeys. These creatures all are doing what the kites have done, adapting to an often hostile environment shaped by humans. In this ecosystem, kites serve a necessary role by devouring vermin and rubbish in those huge landfills. The second ecosystem, the social one, is demanding, especially on those who are outsiders. At this moment in Indian history, with Hindu nationalists wielding power, the outsiders are Muslims, including Nadim, Saud, and Salik. They're often treated as unwelcome, just like the kites, a metaphor that Sen lets us register but doesn't belabor. The final ecosystem is the family, where matters can get even more complicated. It's not simply that Saud's wife gets annoyed at how he ignores his home life, but that Nadim and Saud themselves don't see eye to eye. Where Saud finds ecstasy in treating the birds, Nadim dreams of going to college in the U.S. He wants to see the world, and then return even more skilled at healing. Saud thinks of this as abandonment. Now this is a lot for one 90-minute film, and Sen sometimes strains a bit in reaching for a grand sense of meaning. Yet this is a quibble about a film that's bursting with humanity. In an age when we're constantly reminded of all that's bad, all that breathes celebrates good things it's easy to forget. The wonder of life, the virtues of compassion, and the human capacity to make the world better. John Powers reviewed the documentary All That Breathes, which can be seen on HBO and HBO Max. Coming up, we'll hear from comic Mark Marin. He has a new comedy special called From Bleak to Dark. This is Fresh Air Weekend. Terry has our next interview. Here she is. My guest Mark Marin has a new HBO comedy special called From Bleak to Dark. And if the title isn't enough of a clue about the tone of the show, here's how it starts. I don't want to be negative, but I don't think anything's ever going to get better ever again. I don't want to bump anybody out, but I think this is pretty much the way it's going to be for however long it takes us to polish this planet off. 
There's a lot of bleak subjects Marin deals with, like climate change, threats from the far right, anti-Semitism, and his toxic relationship with his father, who now has dementia. The darkest part of his life has been the death of his girlfriend, the TV and movie director, Lynn Shelton. Before becoming a couple, they'd worked together. She directed episodes of his series Marin, the series he co-starred in Glow, and the movie Sort of Trust. She died in 2020 unexpectedly of a previously undiagnosed case of acute myeloid leukemia. From Bleak to Dark is Marin's fifth comedy special, his first for HBO. He's famous as a comic, but in the past few years he's been acting in more movies and TV, including Glow, where he played the coach of a women's wrestling team, Joker, where he was the producer of a late-night show hosted by Robert De Niro's character, and Respect, playing Jerry Wexler, the famous Atlantic Records producer who helped Aretha translate her sound and style into soul music hits. And now, Marin's co-starring in the film To Leslie as the manager of a motel who helps a woman addicted to alcohol. Marin's podcast, WTF, is the first one-on-one podcast episode inducted into America's National Recording Registry. Mark, welcome back to Fresh Air. It is so good to talk with you again. And I have to start by saying I really love your special. Well, it's good to talk to you too, Terry. It's been a while. It seems to me that was not an easy special to do. I mean, what's the old expression? Comedy is tragedy plus time. So when and why did you start thinking it's time to turn the worst thing that's ever happened to you, the death of Lynn Shelton, into something you wanted to talk about in a comedy show? Did you feel like if you didn't talk about it, you'd be hiding an essential thing about who you are now? Yeah, of course. Uh, It was already public, and I already addressed it on my podcast in a very painful broadcast that I chose to do days after she passed away, you know, just out of respect for what we do and out of respect for her, and and it was kind of crazy. So if you listen to my podcast and and you were put through that raw, uh, uncontrollable grief that I chose to make public, you knew what was going on. And and then over time, yeah, I mean, I felt like it would be wrong. I mean, I, because there was part of me that wanted to share the experience of grief or my, uh, my feelings that I had within grief uh, because I thought it would help people. I, I wasn't, it really was something more selfless than I think I'd done. I think there is not a, a very broad or public cultural dialogue around grief and around loss. And it's something that everyone's going to deal with. Everyone is going to deal with it. You said that when things get hard, you go mystical. What have you done to get through this period? You're not religious. You've been sober since 2009, so you can't have a shot or a glass of wine or cocaine. Um, And during much of the past two years, you couldn't even socialize and see friends because of the COVID lockdown. So what helped you get through the initial period of grief, the the rawest period of grief, what did you turn to? Well, it was so isolating because, you know, sadly, um, you know, her and I weren't together long enough, uh, you know, publicly or, or, or in our in our relationship. You know, we've known each other for years, but as as partners, to, I didn't know her family really. Uh, you know, I'd met them at film festivals once or twice, a couple of them, but but I didn't know them. There was no relationship there. And it was just, I mean, what I was managing when that happened is like, if I hadn't asked her, you know, I, 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 they were taking her away, you know, in the ambulance when she, she collapsed after really a very 
quick, it was not even, it was like a week of, of you know, extreme flu symptoms. And and when they were taking her away, I said, you know, give me your phone. And she's like, I need my phone. And I said, well, give me the code. And I don't know why, but I she gave me the code. And and if she hadn't done that, I don't know what would have happened. I mean, they t- because she was unconscious by the time she got to the hospital and she was fighting for her life the rest of that day. And I had to get on the phone with an intensive care nurse and say, well, here's the code, you know, get me some Shelton's because I, I don't know her people. And when she went into the hospital, she listed me as the point of contact because she didn't think she was going to, you know, die. But I felt it necessary to have her her family really to, to take the lead in, in handling a lot of this stuff. So initially, leading up to her passing was just devastating. And then my brother came out and... Um, you know, he stayed for like two weeks and we had to, you know, go through her stuff. So that was devastating, but oddly engaging and, and somewhat distracting in the midst of, you know, just being shattered and, and crying, you know, all the time and on and off. And then we also had some sort of Shiva experience happening like the next day after she passed. Michaela Watkins had put together like a Zoom thing where people, it was almost too soon in a way and very awkward and and, you know, it was there that I started to feel a certain insecurity around my relationship with her because there were people that have known her for decades. She has, you know, a, a, a husband and a son and all these old friends. And I just felt like, you know, like I'm, I'm just like I don't I, I didn't have that long with her. And, and I'm the guy that she died with. And it felt like a, a horrible weight. And it, it just added to the sadness. And, and uh, but but ultimately um, what helped me in the isolation and help me deal with things is that my community reached out in a way that I never thought possible because it was public. And I got, you know, I got phone calls from so many people that, you know, I barely knew, you know, in, 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 in comedy and, and show business and, and, uh, everybody really, you know, reached out, they sent food. Some people kind of came over despite the COVID and, you know, some of my, you know, I remember that Alison Brie from, from Glow, she came over and, and she, and, you know, we, it was, it was a weird time because, you know, there, there was this sense that even hugging was somehow life-threatening, you know? Yeah. And also I, I got into the habit of doing these Instagram lives every day where, where I felt a, a need to have an audience or to engage because there was no way there was no one, I, I couldn't, I was alone over here. So that became sort of essential and peculiar because I was doing basically some version of a morning show from my porch every day. Uh, sometimes for an hour and a half a day, I would have, you know, five, 600 live viewers and, you know, we would play music. I would be angry. I'd talk about politics. I'd talk about grief. You know, I would, you know, we you know, play records and, you know, play with the cats. And, and it, I think it worked two ways, and it also was the beginning of the process of understanding uh, showing up for other people without knowing it is that, you know, this is the middle. No one was going out, and I had this strange audience of uh, other people who were alone in their homes, and they they became sort of regulars, and they, they became very grateful, and it became a community. And that sort of, like, in a lot of ways, you know, got me through, oddly. So you live alone. And you've you've lived alone a long time, and I, I know even during part of your relationship with with Lynn before before she passed, that you were sometimes living alone, but being together most of the time. Um, but you had your own places. Are you good at being alone? Do you I get, love it. Yeah. Uh huh. 
talk to me a little bit about that, about what the value is for you of being alone and what your need is to connect with people and, and how you balance all that. I, I don't know, but, uh, you know, I've just been so fortunate in not having children and and so fortunate in somehow turning my career around at some point that I'm, I'm, I'm relatively financially secure. And also I've been through enough relationships and through enough things to to kind of know myself you know, pretty well at this point. I imagine, though, that yeah, who the, who knows what would have happened with Lynn and I, but it was really the first time in my life I had sort of relaxed into, you know, what was an age appropriate relationship was a relationship based on respect and attraction and caring. And, you know, when she was here, she was spending a lot of time here because it was the pandemic and it was nice to have a sort of home base. I imagine that her and I, in my fantasy or, or what I thought at the time that I'd really found, you know, someone to... um spend spend the rest of my life with but but who, who knows so but but for me like people ask me why don't you get a, a personal assistant i'm like well th- what would i do with my life i mean i i like going to the post office i like going to the record store i'll shop at two or three uh, supermarkets a day sometimes i'll cook you know for hours uh, just for myself or or for the the woman i'm seeing now i like doing little things around the house uh, I play guitar. I listen to records. All I know, and, and then I'm interviewing people for the podcast, is that by the end of any day, I feel like I've had a pretty full day by myself and a pretty satisfying day generally by myself. Uh, I just engage with life. I like running errands. I like going on hikes. I don't know. It feels uh, totally satisfying. So uh, I don't know what that means about me. I can't present myself as some uh, emotional wizard or some psychologically stable uh, person in terms of relationships. Uh, But I, uh, I do a joke. Did I I do it? I don't think I did it in the special where I say, look, I know, you know, I'm a self-centered person. I know I'm I'm oversensitive. I'm a little paranoid. I'm not great at intimacy. Uh, I know I can, you know, I'm prone to anger sometimes. I know all these things about myself. I don't know why I would need someone in my house telling me them every couple of days. So So you dropped in that answer that you feel lucky that you didn't have children. And in your special, you joke about not having children and that you never really wanted them. And you say, if you have kids, I can't begin to tell you how great it would be if you didn't. <laughs> and I thought that was really funny. But I was wondering when you wrote that, did you think, like, I'm going to lose every parent in my audience if I say this? No, because I I really believe, as I said, I think in the next line or two, that that paradigm is sort of shifting um, in that the people that don't have kids were sort of looked at as sad, you know, freakish people. But now I can't imagine what it would be like to have kids and try to, you know, give them any advice to navigate this world that, you know, most adults don't even understand. It must be difficult and it must be difficult every day. And and for me, when I say that, I think it gets a good laugh. I don't think I'm losing an audience. I think that every parent uh, I would say probably 80 or 90 percent of them uh, really need relief <laughs> from parenting. And the fantasy of not having kids on any given day is probably, you know, pretty exciting, an exciting prospect. Not a possibility any longer, but a, uh, but an exciting idea to have a moment of, of uh, reprieve with. When you look at your friends who do have kids, what do you think you may be missing out on, if anything? I think that there is something that, you know, stifles my emotional growth because I don't have kids. 
And um, I think that there's something about the selflessness necessary and the type of love uh, that's available there that I'll never experience. But I have sort of a, a difficult time experiencing love with humans in general. And so, like, I'm still kind of, like, trying to let myself, you know, love in a way just just to have a relationship. Uh, but I, I'm so terrified of it and guarded in certain ways. I mean, the, the people that really get the best of me are, are audiences that I walk away from. Yeah, but that's, uh, that's crazy, you know, like, because you're so intimate with audiences. You reveal so much about yourself. But it sounds like you have trouble doing that in real life with somebody who you're actually trying to be intimate with, trying to have an intimate relationship with. I mean, no, it's hard. And I do it with guests, too. It's like, really, if I didn't do the podcast or comedy, I would have a very little emotional life. So why does it need to be um, mediated through, you know, uh, like a microphone or, or a stage? That's one way to look at it, that, that it's the mediation that's the benefit. I, I don't know. The benefit might be they leave. So, <laughs> so I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not I'm not sure it's the public nature of the expressing the vulnerability but that like okay nice nice meeting you people I'm going to go. Yeah, kind of like nice meeting you and I don't really know know who you are and you don't exactly. really know who I am exactly. and we don't really yeah. have access to each other. That's so right. This has been great. Yeah. Good night. Yeah, 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 good night. I'm glad you uh, got so much out of that. I'm going to go spend the other 23 hours of my day. <laughs> but uh but no look man, I I mean I uh I'm I I am sort of getting older and in something is giving way and and I am trying to to be a little more um, um, able to to allow myself to uh, be open and vulnerable uh, but I you know there's a problem because I don't have you know, I grew up with with very faulty emot- emotional boundaries so I couldn't keep anybody out and you know and my sense of self was threatened. You know, for most of my life, you know, either by, you know, my parents' needs or or the relationships that I got into that were destructive. So it's I really had to shut down uh, at some point in a fairly conscious way. And now that's sort of giving way and certainly losing somebody you love in in the way that I, I did. And that was really a different type of love for me is kind of, you know, force something open Um I don't, I don't know what what exactly it is, but you certainly look at life differently when somebody uh, passes like that and and does so tragically. And, and and you realize how like impermanent things are when somebody totally. dies suddenly and unexpectedly, you're you're totally unprepared for it. Um, so, did you make changes in your life after thinking about how how vulnerable people are and how? fragile life is and how impermanent sure i i think a, a lot more uh about uh you know r- random ways i can die <laughs> oh that's helpful <laughs> that's congratulations sure. I, that's just what you yeah. need <laughs> yeah just really someone who's already I paranoid to, <laughs> yeah i need to grow like that terry i needed yeah, to yeah, yeah, really uh-huh. expand my imagination uh-huh. so every every moment uh, awake is terrifying um well i i think certainly Coming through it and and living with the grief, I do believe that I'd like to find some joy. I've I've really put a lot more thought into, you know, stopping the compulsive nature of how I work to live in a way that's present and, and has some happiness in it, because I don't know that I, I ever really did that. So in that way, I think that it, it makes me a little more open and a little more available for for some joy uh if 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 i'm capable of it 
because Lynn was like, like Lynn was just exuded a sort of positivity and joy and was so charismatic and so kind of like uh, all about, you know, just living and showing up and just excited. And she was such a great laugher, you know, and the fact that like she loved me because I didn't believe it for a long time. You know, I really fought it. I fought her on that. But she kind of persisted and, and broke me down and, and and I finally accepted it. But I don't think I'd be doing some of the stuff I'm doing without her in my life. And and it just so it so happens that, that, that some of those things are, are some of the things that are, uh, you know, kind of, um, you know, bringing me joy now. And I, and I don't think I would have felt confident to do them without without her in my life. Mark, I, I really, it's so good to talk with you again, and I'm really grateful for your comedy special. Um, it really made me laugh a lot, and that felt really good. Um, but it also is really uh, very thoughtful, very reflective, and emotional, and to do all of that at the same time is a balancing act that is really hard to achieve, but you did it, so thank you for that. You're welcome, and thank you for talking to me. Um, I, I really appreciate it, and uh, I have... Uh... Nothing but love and respect for you, Terry. Oh, that's how I feel about you. I'm so grateful for our microphone <laughs> relationship. <laughs> yes. um, mediated by microphones, but yes. really important to me. Um, oh, good. Well, thanks. Yeah. Mark Marin speaking with Terry Gross. His new HBO comedy special is called From Bleak to Dark. <laughs> Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies. Mm-hmm.